Thank you for tuning in to the Practical Preservation Podcast. Please take a moment to visit our website, practicalpreservationservices.com, for additional information and tips to help you restore your historical home. If you've not done so, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, and also like us on Facebook. Welcome to the Practical Preservation Podcast, hosted by Danielle and Jonathan Kepperling. Kepperling Preservation Services is a family-owned business based in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, dedicated to the preservation of our built architectural history for today's use as well as future generations. Our weekly podcast provides you with expert advice specific to the unique needs of renovating a historic home, educating by sharing our from-the-trenches preservation knowledge and our guests' expertise, balancing modern needs while maintaining the historical significance, character, and beauty of your period home. Today on the Practical Preservation Podcast, we have um, April Thomas with us. She is from Fashions Revisited, and is it Fashions Revisited Foodways, or is that just the the yes, that's basically the that's Instagram? The okay, <laughs> yep, yeah, but it's basically yeah. like the other half. So yes, Fashions Revisited and Fashions Revisited Foodways—they're the same. Okay, same okay very good. Well, so tell me a little bit about your background. I'm excited to talk to you today. Well, I'm very excited to be with you, Danielle, as well. So thank you for having me. Um, so. My background starts in the early 1980s when it comes to historic preservation and living history. Um, I had parents who were incredibly uh, just fanatical about history, all types of history. They loved reading, watching, whatever. So my mother found a couple different um, historic sites nearby to get involved with. And so I was basically raised in what you would call like American foodways. Um, started hearth cooking when I was about six or seven. It was uh, something that I just, naturally took to. Um, my mother from that point on always joked that I must have been mailed wrong. <laughs> Maybe had a different life, I don't know. Um, but some parts of especially 18th and 19th century history just seemed to connect. I connected with them. And I loved, um, I'm very hands-on person. I love the um, learning about basically all the really primal, important things about humanity that we sort of are honestly losing these days. We're recognizing that we're losing them. So we're trying to save them, which is another part of the preservation world that I love, you know, that people are getting back to the idea of where does your food come from and why is it important to, um, to know about your food and to have practical skills, especially when the power goes out, yes. um, but, you know, <laughs> which is important for everybody. Um, but basically I started uh, getting involved with living history sites um, in the Chad's Ford, Pennsylvania area in the 1980s. And it just sort of snowballed. I spent the rest of my youth and um, early life um, studying it, um, volunteering at different historic sites, working, training people in hearth cooking, and uh, eventually went to college for um, fashion design and costume history. And um, I had taken a little bit of a sidetrack in insurance for a while, which sent me sent me back to college really quickly. <laughs> the insurance world was was really wonderful and exciting, gave me lots of experience. But I was like, this is this is not for me. I need history in my life. So yeah. um, when I came out of college, I decided to um, dive straight in and start a small business. It wasn't fashions revisited right away. I just went under my name, April C. Thomas, and I um, just you know 
had done what I've been doing for years, only more professionally, I started making historic reproduction clothing for sites all over the country and for people in the Chadsworth area, because that really is like the heart of uh, 18th century living history in America. It's a very big hub of American foodways and um, lots of, lots of uh, really influential people have done all of their studying on um, you know, material culture in that area. So it was a really great place to start. I think when I moved away about 15 years ago, from that area, I realized how lucky I was to grow up there and how many people have influenced and how much history there was right there. But um, yeah, I, I sort of just dove right in. My parents and family thought it was a bit crazy that I would try to make my living um, doing that. About 15 years later, I am finally making a living, which is <laughs> cool, right? So, you're, so you're, you're one of those overnight successes. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah, I wasn't just like, people supported me out of control when it was like, there was no, inst- you know, at that point there was, there was like internet, but we had like no, you know, no Facebook. Right. Then we barely had cell phones that worked. This was that. I think it was really interesting to start then because now I see so many more people that are able to thrive in this world that I'm in, which was sort of American foodways and um, sort of clothing reproduction, things like that. But it was a lot harder without Instagram. I'll say that much. Um, it's it's much easier to make a living and be found now. But that's really um, where I started, and um, I've spent half my life. Um, no, I've really spent most of my life half between American foodways, reproducing it, and teaching people educating people, working at sites, and also being a historic customer, essentially, as my other full-time, part-time job. I would say it's <laughs> feast or famine, but I love working with historic sites and um, reenacting. It's, it touches on a lot of different areas, including film and TV, but it's, all, it's always exciting. It's always fraught with, um, where's my next paycheck coming from? But I have a great supportive family. So um, like I said, now it's a little easier, and I feel like people are finally in tune with it and understand it because it's so much more visual. It's in front of them. Right. Uh, like, like Instagram. So um, yeah, that's really my history. And since the last five years, uh, about eight years ago, I launched Fashions Revisited itself as an entity and okay. created a, a pattern line to go with it and sort of branded and did all that fun adult stuff where you turn it into a brand. Right. And um, since then, it's been really exciting. I've got to do some really, um, really exciting projects with different places and um, and I fell in with Nye Chaps, Northern Historic Preservation, Northern York County Historic Preservation Society, and um, sort of split my time between that entity and my own. So yeah. that's sort of my history. Well, and I did, I thought it was, when I was doing the research for the podcast, I thought it was really interesting that you have patterns also, because that's a way for someone to, you know, be able to have accurate reproductions if they're willing to put the time in. Um, so it's a way to, you know, broaden the base of people that are, that are able to, um, to have, you know, to, to not, it, maybe they can't afford you to make them a dress, but then, or, you know, whatever piece of clothing it is, but they, they can make it themselves. I couldn't do that. But. <laughs> you, you hit on it, Danielle. It's absolutely true. And like, that's the thing. I sort of felt like there was, when I started, there was a hole in the market. There really was. There, yeah. there weren't a lot of authentic patterns. And people in the 90s, especially in movies and TV, were finally becoming aware that you could do it authentically and it wouldn't, it isn't harder. It's just you need the right tools and resources. Right. And so there was that little hole in the market of going, hmm, well, I came out of fashion design and what is it I'm really, really technically the most qualified to do? Draft patterns, really, essentially, to start out with. That's what they'd have you do in the industry. And um, I essentially thought, well, you know, like, yeah, what am I going to be doing? I'm going to be doing historic reproduction clothing. That's what I wanted. 
So I got to start on these. I think that's, there's a market for it. Yeah. And thankfully, yeah, that's how I see it too. Cause if people can't afford me or they don't want to, you know, they just want to sew, um, it opens up a whole new world and they can use them for museums or they can use them just for, you know, I have people that make this stuff just to wear all different places. It's really fun. <laughs> it's really fun. When people send me their pictures, I'm like, you're at a club. That's great. Good for you. Like I want people to wear it wherever, but I, I'm yeah, we, market. Yeah. we have a friend <laughs> whose husband dresses like he's in the 18th century all the time. So I, I you know. Awesome. <laughs> um, just a quick note if anyone's never seen like the, the programs on Tasha Tudor the artist um, I want to live like Tasha Tudor I just can't right now I think all of us should like she literally lived in like the 1830s and just like had no electricity and she was so happy and her her life message was like you know life is life is more interesting if you don't you do what the mainstream does and I sort of admire her but yeah I, I feel like I look at people like that and I would like to do that I just can't do that yet um, because I can't work and do that at the same time, but I really love that people can do that these days. Right, right. I, I yeah, I, I, I've. Um, there used to be a historic home show outside of Philadelphia that we would go to every year, and half of it was like home people, and half of it was um, like reproduction, um, mostly furniture, but the, you know, people who were doing accurate reproductions. And um, the one guy was like, "I'm trying to get my time down because I'm trying to do this all with hand tools. And they, the, the, I was reading this apprentice journal and he could do it in eight hours. And I'm like, you're, you're more dedicated than I am. Oh yes. Oh yes. And you know, so, so we're seeing that too, because we sit with candles in front of windows, cross-legged on like windowsills, trying to sew a dress in a day yeah. as, you know, as a, as a milliner or, and I, you know, I've tried it a few times. I go, they, they were really strong people. This is yeah, really hard. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Much braver than I am. I was thinking about that yesterday morning on uh, uh, going off on a tangent when I, I was getting I was I was thinking I am so grateful that I have always had hot water when I turn the faucet <laughs> so true like I said when the power goes out perspective perspective yes <laughs> so um so I kind of I think you kind of explained you know why history you know what why you know why you were interested in history and what why you why you kind of chose this path I can so, never explain it really Danielle honestly I think I, I literally think I was just male wrong I think I just oh. <laughs> <laughs> that and that could be <laughs> I like hot water and Tylenol so yes but yes uh, yeah so so tell me a little bit about your work as the director of the historic um, pathways um food program for the is it northern york uh county historic what, yes, and preservation well, society yes, <laughs> i was trying um, to remember what the, no what the, the ad, anagram was and then at dale's tavern and are they like the same entity I, I was i was unclear about that oh and don't worry you're not alone we've been trying for years to make it um clear to people so i apologize it does um so it's northern york county historic preservation society hence why we call it nichaps and um essentially nichaps was um is a is a um historic preservation society nonprofit that was founded um, many years ago and they essentially were gifted the money to purchase the dill's tavern which was right down the street from nichaps okay. dill's tavern is literally the beginning of the, the history of the town of dillsburg which is where nichaps is um where we are we are right in the heart of dillsburg pennsylvania so um the long story short is that the tavern had been there since the original part of the tavern if i remember correctly because i've been with um nine chaps now for over seven years and i'm still you know there's so much history to learn right. in, in society basically um matthew dill um came to the dillsburg area or in like a 
early, early 18th century. And the first part of the building was around 1705, I believe. Oh, that is um, early. It's really early. And the site is just amazing. And it was somewhat still intact. It's, it had some land with it, land behind it, which we were able to purchase later to preserve more. But the point is that people for years were watching it. Uh, it, was, it was owned as a private residence and then a business. And in the 1980s, it really started to crumble away and people wanted to save it. So um, we had some wonderful benefactors who were able to gift enough money to not only buy the property, but to restore it fully. And we are still, and as you know, we'll continue to, like every site, continue to restore and work on it. But um, it's been lovingly restored. There's a beautiful barn that was just put up a few, a few years ago that was also restored and brought from another site. And so it's essentially the, uh, Dill's Tavern is the focus right now of Nine Chops, I would say, um, because it tells the story of Dillsburg and it gives us such a window into the past of stories to tell about the right. area. And that's really what that preservation society was set up to tell was, you know, local right. Northern York County. Um, yeah. So essentially we're the same. We're just, it's like our little, um, I don't know what that word is. It's our, it's our like shining, beautiful place that we do all our events at. And right. And I was going to say, it gives you a place then for people to like, say, this is what they're doing. This, you know, it gives you kind of a, a touchstone. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's where we have lots of events. We have a farmer's market that's there every Saturday. It's become like a, we wanted it to become a community hub so that it could get, you know, that my chefs could give back and really um, preserve the history for everybody in that town. And we've, it's been really well accepted. We're really excited and just thrilled. And it's a beautiful place to play. <laughs> so. So, okay. And, and I saw that you were, had a, you were in an episode of A Taste of History on PBS. Yes. Yeah, so um, when I came on board about five years ago, I started slowly doing food programs for NICHAPS because I moved to the area in 2007 and I had a lot of family here. And to make a long story short, again, NICHAPS reached out, some members reached out and said, hey, you, you're in American Foodways. You're a hearth cook. Would you like to come and, you know, work with us, do some programs? Um, so, of course, I, I said yes, because they're only 10 minutes down the road. I was thrilled right. to have a new home. And, um, and it all just sort of snowballed from there. But um, I... I was fortunate enough that they said, would you like to you know, direct the programs and do the programming and train our people and, you know, all the, all the fun aspects that go along with a living history site. So of course I said yes. And I've just had so much um, creative freedom with them. They're a wonderful site to work with. And about three years ago, um, myself and another board member, Mark Hagenbuch, who is a longtime uh, living historian himself, we reached out to Walter Stabe of uh, Taste of History at Philadelphia City Tavern because we had both met Walter on and off. He's a lovely, lovely man, really. Right. Um, and of course, you know, being foodies, we just love the show. And so we reached out and just basically said, hi, Walter, we know you come to historic sites. Would you like to come and play at our site? <laughs> and um, he was, at first, you know, first thing he was like, yes, we'd, we'd love to. It's great. We've got a great big long waiting list. So we just sort of assumed, you know, maybe it would happen right um early last year we got the the go-ahead that hey we've got a spot here we're gonna squeeze you in it how do you feel about filming in like three weeks oh goodness <laughs> it was wonderful it was fraught with all all things all um the normal production woes and um and intensity but it was wonderful and basically walter said at this point in the series um I've gone so many places and I've done so many things and I'm letting each site tell their story now. So what would you like to cook, April? And I just, my draw, you know, jaw just dropped to the floor and I went, um, uh, wow, you can let me do the menu? Okay, you're, <laughs> you're, you're really trusting and brave. No, um, working with them was wonderful. He let us develop the menu based on the history of our site. 
Oh, that's and great. He came out and we filmed and he and his crew, you know, are just amazing, amazing people. And they were so much fun to work with and all the things that, um, that, you know, you, you normally say when it comes to production, there, there were hilarious things that happened. We didn't have anything really disastrous. And I think oh, the, that's great. The, turned out really great, but people have been really excited to see, um, you know, the inside of the tavern and, and because the tavern, like I said, it's been sort of a mystery for years. So it really, I think has opened up, um, a whole new, uh, audience for us. And right. I really thank Walter for that because working with them was absolutely fun. And I think when people see the episode, they can tell that he's an absolute hoot. So <laughs> I was being really knowledgeable. So yeah, we filmed that and that just aired on PBS a couple months ago, but now it's available on Amazon prime to stream. Oh, great. So it's, um, season, um, 11 episode one, um, The Seed of a City. Season episode one. And um, I, I, I will tell you, I have not seen it. Uh, Laura, who coordinated us connecting, she was telling me about it, but I, I have not taken, I have not had a chance to, to see it yet. So what was the menu? Oh, the menu was um, based as closely as possible on all of the um, research and documentation that I've done um, about the food there. We know that the the tavern was a typical 18th century tavern, so a lot of a lot of tavern fare, common fare, uh, a lot of oysters. Uh, we didn't actually do any oysters because it was so hot that week, and we just uh. couldn't contemplate working. We did um, uh, white bean cassoulet. We showed the smoking of sausages, which we do on site in the historic manner. We use those in the cassoulet. Uh, I grilled uh, shad and talked a lot about shad. Um, shad was such a common thing mm -hmm. um, because we didn't have low head dams. And, um, you know, the way that we have uh, sort of controlled our waterways now, it's not allowed for the shad to be essentially in yes. the air anymore. Yeah. But shad, we did shad to talk about that. Um, we also baked a lot of beautiful things in the bake oven and um, we did some uh, roasting in front of the fire, which is, which looked really lovely on camera with um, some big legs of, um, Oh, forgive me. I'm trying to remember. Um, uh, mutton. We did mutton. Oh, mutton. Okay. Legs of mutton and my, my long suffering, wonderful hubby sat there and turned them for five and a half hours. Oh my goodness. <laughs> It was worth it. It's beautiful. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, but we really got to showcase what, you know, what a daily um, or weekly, you know, fair would look like at a tavern. People have, um, I think it's one of my life's missions now, especially with Nightchaps, to, to really give that accurate representation of what tavern fair was really like in the 18th century. It isn't the beef stew and cherry pie idea that we have been sold in the 20th century. It's, right. um, you know, you, you didn't have a menu like today. That was definitely not a thing yet, um, but you know you weren't just served slob on a plate. Um, you know the the you really you had local 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 food because that was that's what you had. <laughs> you had. Yes. They did do a lot of um, this family because of their uh, whiskey distilling business, which is what the the Dills really made their money on. They were a distillery as well as an actual um, you know like. Uh, traveling, uh, what you would call an, an inn or a tavern. People would, would stop and stay. They were on the main highway at the time. People come and have a meal, stay overnight, continue on. But their main business was actually whiskey distilling. And they were one of the top distillers in the country. They even rivaled George Washington's estate. So they would do a lot of trading with Baltimore. They would take whiskey to Baltimore and sell it and bring back barrels of oysters. I mean, they, they, yeah, that, I was I was thinking that you have to get, you have to go to, to the bay to get the oysters. <laughs> exactly. So there's a lot of, like, like a lot of historic sites when they would dig and, you know, lots of, lots of archaeological work done. Oyster shells 
everywhere. So yes. we definitely know they had some, what you would call imported food, but for the most part, you know, people would be served whatever was common local fare. And, um, but it isn't the slop that people presume. And that's what I really enjoy telling about historic foodways is um, reimagining it in people's minds in a correct way that, you know, they have an idea of what 18th century food is like. And I like to, um, sometimes it's not wrong, but most of the time people have a sort of like very, yeah, like I said, just sort of beef stew, cherry pie, slop on a plate, yeah. no choice. And that's just not, not right. So, yeah. so and, and I was, that, that's kind of my next question. You know, what surprises people when you're, you know, doing your, your um, events for, in your programs, your food programs about the historic food history, um, traditions, recipes, are there, are there, are there something that is like a common thread that people are surprised about? Absolutely. I think, um, first off, it's the appearance of food. Whenever I've done lots of different programs, we do programs, especially at Nine Chaps, where we actually, um, we have meals where they come and can experience an 18th century tavern meal. We have teas, which are authentic teas. We do um, workshops. And we, of course, demonstrate uh, on open days and things like that. So people get a really broad view of all the different ways of, you know, what food looks like. So whether it's baking in the bake oven or cooking in the hearth or being presented a plate of food at a, at a formal dinner or special dinner that we host. People are genuinely shocked when it doesn't look like what they think it will look like. It doesn't look um, scary. <laughs> um, I often say things like, I thought that it, you know, when I thought that I could eat it, but I didn't think it would taste this good. Or I didn't realize that this smoke really improved the flavor. Those are the sort of things I hear. Oh, um, yeah. And also people are shocked at how quickly it cooks. Um, you know, when we tell them that we can put something like a loaf of bread into a small Dutch oven by the hearth and cover it in coals or put it in the, in the large bake oven and pull it out probably about 35 minutes later, they can't believe it cooks that fast. They can't understand it. Um, and it's really, you know, there's lots of reasons for that, but I explain it as it's um, very high heat. And if you, right. know, if you know how to cook within using that high heat, you can cook something very quickly and efficiently. And I almost never burn anything. Of course, watch me go back out next time. I burn <laughs> everything, Danielle. People expect it, essentially, even if they know you're good at it, they expect it to be ugly, right? no taste, and um, burnt. And those are the things I love when people go, oh, it's, 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 wow, it's amazing. I didn't think I would like it this much. They also think that there's a common misconception throughout all historic foodways, whether it's in England or here. Um, people have been sold a narrative that, food from the past was spoiled or rancid and had oh, yes. you know, covered up with, they use lots of nutmeg or this because the food didn't taste good. Yeah. Well, that's just utter tosh because it's not, I mean, basically people have always known, in fact, they were better at preserving food than we are. They um, might be in that sort of spring starving time, but we know in the past when we didn't have, you know, the, the methods of preservation we have now for preserving right. food. They just had different ones, but they weren't idiots and they had systems and they had methods. And so they wouldn't eat rotten food unless they were starving. And same right. thing, we wouldn't eat rotten food unless we were starving. So um, food is, um, is not as highly spiced as we've often been told. However, they did have spices. They did have the things we had. They just used them in smaller amounts like sugar. It's amazing when most of the, the pudding and cake recipes you use from that period, they still taste wonderful, but the amount of sugar is considerably lower. And um, once you get used to that, there's, there's no problem. We're so overly right. um, connected with sugar right now. <laughs> we, have too, we have too much sugar. Let's just be honest. We have too much sugar. Right. And yeah. so people are shocked when they realize um, 
how good the food tastes, but it is very different. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm really happy when I see people, you know, say these things or hear these things, they walk up to me and say, I didn't expect to like it this much. I really enjoyed it. And that warms my heart and makes me know I'm in the right you know, yeah. career path. That, <laughs> that, 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 I think that's always great when somebody, you know, appreciates what you're doing. I had a couple of thoughts when you were talking about that. One was from my, you know, my, my right out of high school culinary arts training. Um, mm -hmm. and, um, learning about baking as chemistry. I wonder like if I would think that we could not alter our recipes now to have less sugar in them and get the same results. So we would have to like go back to the old recipe. So that was just like a thought that ran through my head. <laughs> I, you know, it's a really good thought. I think a lot of people are, are doing that because we're so health conscious now too. I think yes. a lot of people are sort of going back to basics. You do yeah. see a lot of like modern chefs and, and people, even Michelin star chefs, you know, in like the UK who were like, Oh, you know what? I'm going to do this 18th century flourless cake recipe by Hannah Glass because well, A, I have gluten-free people that, you know, are going to love this, but they realize when they make it like, oh wow, it actually does taste good. And it uses, right. yeah, yeah, it's amazing. But you do sort of have to deconstruct, it's harder. You sort of have to just sometimes go back and start over again. And I really think that that's exciting. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think there's a lot more research that. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I think that's interesting. I would be curious, um, you know, as like from a food history standpoint, when the, when the, when we started adding so much more sugar, I mean, I know some of it was like the high fructose corn syrup, but just even in regular baking recipes, I know there's a lot of sugar in. Oh, absolutely. In the, in, yeah. And in Cliff's notes terms, like the, the short answer that I can give people to understand is, and, and it's really good, really interesting subject to read up on, but it's really the industrialization. Oh, uh, that makes sense because it made it less expensive. It made it cheap. Yeah, cheap. When everything becomes cheap, and same with clothing, when industrialization comes along, and I'm not, I'm not knocking it, but it's right. like amazing how quickly we lose food culture. We lose um, local food culture. Even in that point, they were starting to lose it. We we start to consume a lot more things that end up giving us the obesity and things problems we have now. And it's right. all around the time of industrialization when things become cheap and readily available, then, you know, that's when, yeah, sugar consumption just goes through the roof. So, yeah. 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 So, and then the other thought I had was that there was a, I don't know if you saw it, maybe it was probably close to 20 years ago. There was two, two PBS reality shows. They tried to do two reality shows. Oh, One was, I think you know what you're going to talk yeah, about. The, the colonial, <laughs> colonial something. Colonial house. Yep. Colonial house. And then there was a, a prairie one. Um, but I watched yeah. colonial house religiously and they oh, were too. eating rotten <laughs> food the whole time. <laughs> I know I have my thoughts on that because um, yeah. I now know some of the people that were like involved in setting that program up and, you know, cause yeah. it's a small living history book. And it's amazing because I think we do really underestimate how much modern people are used to eating. And so you give them this stock of food and they, and you say, okay guys, this has to last six months or five months or whatever the time is. Right. And it's based on, but you know, we don't, we don't realize that as modern people, you set these modern people back there and you say, you must be disciplined and they go, what's that? Yeah. <laughs> you I can't just go to the grocery store. <laughs> I can't just wait. I can't get more honey. I can't get more peas. Like I think they were so sick on pottage by the end of that. Yeah. But I, uh, yes. I, I watched that religiously too. And I love it. And I think it's a good lesson. I think they all did like the absolute best they could, but there's some things about, that's why it's so good to do this programs. I think it's so wonderful that people, I loved all of those programs. I absolutely, I have them all on video. <laughs> I'll have them on digital now, but I, um, I think there's so much we can learn. And that's part of what I like about doing historic foodways in any way, shape or form, especially is to really make people appreciate what they have and what's important 
in life. Um, all those right. basic sort of things that we sometimes don't think about every day until things start to go wrong and still until Corona hits and we literally don't have enough food left in the pantry. We don't want to go to the store and we suddenly realize, okay, maybe I'm going to have to use a quarter of what I used to. It's those little right. life lessons. Yeah. I think they're really important. And so shows like that are really educational because we realize how um, wonderfully spoiled we are. We um, are. We are. <laughs> you know? Very much. So um, t- uh, talk to me a little bit about your your fashions revisited then. So that's like your other kind of uh, way to connect people with history. Sure. Um, so basically, like I said, about I've been making historic reproduction clothing, um, specifically focused on like the Georgian and colonial period. So 18th century. Um, for uh, almost 20 years when I launched Fashions Revisited, the brand and the pattern line, and it was really, um, let's say earlier, to provide um, more to the community, to the living history community at large, um, for people that work at historic sites, so I could provide, you know, a line of clothing, a line of patterns, um, because I felt really passionate about the fact that I've made my career and my living in museums, in American museums. Mm-hmm. And um, like I said, there's a little film and TV on the side. I produce stuff and sell stuff to that sort of area of, of, um, of the sort of art world as well. But essentially, um, I've always sewn. I've always made, I've always loved historic clothing of any time period, but I felt particularly drawn to um, 18th century, you know, sort of Georgian era. And so um, since launching the business, I, um, uh, created like an Etsy shop to go with it so people can easily buy things. And I've, I, I specialize in uh, ready to wear uh, 18th and early 19th century pieces. So if you work at a historic site, um, you know, in the era, like a lot of the sites in, in um, the United States today, like 18th century, um, I have a lot of clothing and accessories that people can buy. So they can, for example, I worked for many years full time at a historic site where I dressed in 18th century clothing every day. And for me, it wasn't just, it's not a costume, you know, it's a, it's it's, it's your work clothing and it has to be authentic. It has to survive the day, it has to survive the hearth cooking and the elements and being washed once in a while, because you know, we're modern people, we like to wash our clothing. Um, And so it really um, came out of a love for, um, for that era and for wanting to provide people with clothing that I knew they needed and and maybe wanted as well. Cause there's a lot of, costume bloggers now and people that just enjoy a lifestyle. It's the lifestyle, you know, that like we talked earlier, some people really now live or try to live in a certain era. Maybe they work in a certain era. Maybe they just like going and playing for the weekend in a certain era, whatever right. uh, their purpose, their purpose of buying it is. I wanted to provide authentic clothing for that sort of um, world. And um, the foodways is, is like the other half of the business, like we said, but my heart really is, it's torn because I grew up cooking but I also grew up sewing. And then when I went to college, I came out and was actually able to, oh, I can look at a garment and now I can draft it into a pattern. And so um, I guess if I had to choose one, I would probably stick with the sewing because I'm constantly sewing, constantly <laughs> making something. I'm never happy sitting still. Um, but I'm really, really fortunate that um, I've been able to get a good audience because of things like Instagram and the internet. And right. um, I've been really lucky that the jobs I've been offered and the things I've been able to do, but I really enjoy just working in my home studio, being able to be extremely creative and authentic. I can look at a garment and I try to find those pieces that have not been patterned. That's my goal and right. I pieces as well. So that my husband loves that I, I'm like, oh no, you're eating ramen this week because <laughs> I bought a new dress. No, um, I bought this amazing lace fichu and he just stands there. He never rolls his eyes. He's such <laughs> a good man. 
but I'm sure inside he's going, oh dear goodness, what are we doing? <laughs> um, you know, I'm like so excited telling him why this is important and why it's like rare. And he just humors me. He's such a wonderful supportive husband. And yeah. so saying, I love you, Barry, you're wonderful. Um, but no, it's, um, I, I love doing that because I want to preserve those pieces and I know people need and can use and that are beautiful too. But, um, but there's like, again, there's a, a lack of them. And so that's really what I try to do in Fashions Revisited is provide things that people should have and know they should have, but they're not available, whether it be making a new pattern for it or finding that rare fichu and making it and reproducing it in some other modern lace that then people can wear, you know, whether they're reenacting or whether they're working at a historic site. And that's really where my focus right. is. Yeah. And, and um, I, did, I don't think it's live yet, but I did a podcast a few weeks ago with a, a carpet manufacturer and they do like the ingrain carpets. Oh, yes. And he was saying that he wished as these companies were going out of business that he had gone and bought their patterns. Yes. And, and hearing you talk about recreating these patterns, then those will, you know, that'll be able to, somebody will be able to use those a hundred years from now, you know, that it's not, it's not, it's not limited to, to what you produce now. I, I think it's a, it's a yeah. really encouraging thing to hear Danielle, because you know, what's interesting the other day I bought a 1929 pattern from a seller online. And um, I was thinking in the back of my mind, I wonder if in a hundred years, However, whatever method they have of purchasing things in the future, I'd right. love to see one of my patterns pop up. <laughs> if someone a hundred years from now says, "Oh, I'm going to make this fashions revisited pattern," um, and not out of some longing to be like remembered or like have right. this amazing legacy, more just like that's what I'm doing it for. Yes, uh, because as a historian, I think we're all a bit, dare I say, a little bit mad and crazy about protecting and, and, and recreating history because we, we see all the reasons why it's important and we love it. And just, right. the, just the beauty of uh, older clothing is something I've never been able to explain. I just always have loved clothing of any other era, era but the one I'm living in. So <laughs> psychologists feel free to um, judge and um, analyze me. But um, <laughs> basically, yeah, I would love to know that someday, 20 years, 50 years, 100 years, that yeah, somebody would make something out of that pattern and that would make me smile. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I agree. I, it, it's, it's, it's a way to, it's a way to preserve it. It's a way to, mm -hmm. to, to ensure that, that all of the traditional ways are not lost. Absolutely. Um, so, so I think you've kind of touched on, but your clients, are they mostly like either house museum employees or like reenact? They're, they're not called reenactors anymore. I have to remember they're, they're living history. <laughs> oh, no problem. Yeah. I know there's a lot of terminology. Like, and you know, I've been doing this for like 25 years and basically we used to say like, now we say like living history, living historians. There's always like, um, it's good. Like there's a lot of descriptive terms, but yeah, yeah there's, it's, um, it's, it's very varied who I supply. Okay. And, and I love that because. Um, so it's it's a few categories. It's a lot of yeah, house museums, historic sites, historic preservation societies, anybody that has docents or volunteers or full-time living historians who, you know, who who may be like, you know, historians with doctorates who who work on these sites and they recreate things daily, or maybe they're, you know, in an office somewhere and they just come out and play on the weekend at the site. But it's a lot of that. That's my focus. That's who I sort of focused on when I started. But right. there's also yeah, lots of, lots of reenactment in this world. There's a lot of, um, now there's this amazing growing market, which I just love. And I love watching it. The people that just want to be authentic costumers 
and just go and you know visit sites or go to festivals. There's a whole festival mm-hmm. world. There's the whole yeah. Jane Austen world. There is, um, you know, there's a lot. It, it actually crosses over now. Cosplay. Oh yeah. Historic costuming is becoming fused, which I think is wonderful because there is such room for developing like more historic cosplay, which I right. think is exciting. Um, and again, I don't. I love when people. Um, find different ways to use this clothing, but it's it's very varied. And then, of course, there's a small part of what I do um, down the years. I've been very fortunate that there's some film and television involved as well. Yes. Um, so sometimes I get a call um, or an email, and usually in film, in my experience, it's it's like all production. It's like, can we have it by last week? <laughs> <laughs> Which I never. I, you know, if I can do it, I, I I will say yes. And if not, sometimes I'm like, oh, I can't do that. But a lot of times they'll buy a lot of ready-made, or uh, I have done some very specific pieces. And so there, the market is really varied, and it's growing. And that's what's very encouraging. Is oh, that that's you, great. It's growing. It's growing. It's getting bigger. And like I said, that there's lifestyle people. There are people who literally buy a house, fill it full of a period of whatever they mm-hmm. like. Might be. 19th century, my Tasha Tudor like lived in the 1830s essentially every day. Um, then we have people who are into a mid-century modern retro lifestyle and I'm very much into that too. A lot of what I do is retro and vintage and I dress vintage a lot. Um, that's a really growing, growing market. Yeah. But um, it's really exciting to see how the internet and other, other areas, other things are growing these markets and growing this right. interest. And I think it's great because we're just, no matter what, no matter how people use it, they are preserving history and it's just beautiful. I think it's beautiful. Right. Yeah. 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 So. And the internet really does allow like people with varied interests to find each other. And I think that's, that's one of the, the, um, the benefits of, of the internet and you realize that you're not alone. <laughs> okay. Very true. So I used to say eccentricity is a noble pursuit because often when you tell people like myself and I tell people what I do, I get one of two reactions. I think a lot of us, um, are used to someone saying things like that and 10 cents will get you a cup of coffee. <laughs> really kind of now we would say really insulting things, but years ago you just used to brush it off and be like, Oh, they just don't understand. Um, when you're at a cocktail party and explain what you do, right. Um, or either really accepting um, or they're really like, honestly, they are, they can be often very judgmental, which I, I think it's changing though, because people aren't, like I said, everything's now more visual. It's in their face. They can right. see what you're doing. They can understand it better than trying to explain it. And, um, and that's, never a bad thing. <laughs> so <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah. I, 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 there are some, there are some jobs that I do wonder how people make money doing it. But <laughs> I do, right? and, and you have to be a bit like in love with the job because yeah. it doesn't make you any money at all. Um, but yeah. uh, it's always really interesting, isn't it? To hear. It is. It is. Um, I was wondering like, so when you're um, making different, different outfits or I don't know what the right terms are um do you do like maybe different like stations like in like society societal stations or do you just do kind of the uh like a a basic oh it's a great question so um when it comes to the area that I focus on which is um 18th century so 1700s is is primarily the amount the the time period that I produce the most clothing for um that's mainly what my Etsy shop essentially focuses on and it's varied because um I really believe strongly in representing all the different aspects of, of life in that time period. So for example, when I'm cooking at a site, I'm very well aware of the fact that there are lots of people like myself out there in the world at historic sites doing the same thing. And when you're cooking, you are representing um, 
a couple different classes of people and depending on where you are for example if you're if you're cooking in a hearth in an 18th century american site you're probably representing a young woman or um a young servant or a young enslaved woman and so you have to have like the kind of clothes that are actual like working everyday clothes right. and so i do a lot of a lot of you know linen petticoats and jackets and stays and um linen caps and that's the sort of thing that people what we would consider like our sweats Right. Um, you know, our working clothing. And then, um, of course, I love doing the frilly pretty stuff as well, because there's a lot of um, ways that people can wear that, interpret that clothing. Um, you know, there's a lot of dancers. That's another sort of aspect of a lot of people do historic dancing for a hobby. And so when you go to a, a beautiful ball or a dance, you're, you're definitely not going to go in your working clothing. So there's a market for and a need for the high end, beautiful Georgian pieces, um, like the sack back gowns and the English gowns and all of the frilly lace caps and kerchiefs and everything that go along with that. Um, so I try to do a, a pretty wide range because in my own life and experience, I have those, those two sort of those two sort of personalities. I'm, I'm right. often portraying a very middling or working class American woman, uh, early early you know colonial um, interpretation, um, or I might be set up at a show or at a, a beautiful festival or venue where it makes more sense to dress more beautifully because you're not slaving over a hearth. Right. And so that's where I have the more high end things. But um, I really think it's important to have that range because um otherwise you can't tell the story now some obviously if i just focused on one i don't think people would be upset but i really like to focus on um as much as possible without making driving myself crazy because i still don't have anybody i employ it's so specialized i just never will right. so um you know if i make one more line of clothing my head probably will explode but i i it's not going to stop me um <laughs> mainly what i produce is i would say like sort of middling middling so that people can interpret the sort of um, basic things at historic sites or, um, you know, like the everyday life. And that's where, you know, that's where I focus. I think. Yeah. And that makes sense to me. So, and I, I think you kind of touched on it when you said that you're, you know, it's so specialized, but, but um, tell me a little bit about what makes your business different than maybe some others. So there are more and more businesses like me right now, like we mm -hmm. talked about the sort of exposure and the internet and lots of other factors that have, really allowed these sorts of markets for this sort of thing to grow, which is wonderful, both foodways and the clothing. But, um, oh, forgive me, my train of thought just went, Danielle. Oh, no. Oh, but I was just wondering what makes your, you, your so business makes, different. Yes. Yeah. So what makes different is there are um, some that are large businesses. There are some that are small. For the most part, most of them are pretty small. Um, I think what makes mine different is that I, I was doing this from from you know a very young age. I was in right. so for me it's not it's not a costume. It's it's actually so much of the 18th century and early 19th century clothing that I have been wearing for years feels I feel more myself in it than I do my modern clothes, which is why it explains a lot about my psyche and why I do not like <laughs> modern clothing. Right. Um, I I just. So what makes mine different is I don't employ anybody. I don't send things off to China. There are a lot of really wonderful companies who are able to produce a lot of um, off the rack items. And, you know, there's a market for that. That's great because there are a lot of sites in the United States and the world that need this clothing and they need it fast. And, you know, we're in Amazon, as you know, we're in an Amazon society where right. we're used to things. Um, it's getting harder and harder to, um, 
produce clothing in a time frame that people are comfortable with, even those people that understand why it has to take longer than um, even a couple of weeks, a couple of months. You know, making one of these really elaborate gowns is 60, 80, 90 hours sometimes. Right. Um, so I try to make as much as possible and cater to the modern world as much as possible, but also maintain that old world um, technique and aesthetic and everything else. So what makes my difference? I don't outsource anything. I don't outsource even the patterns. Um, it sounds kind of martyr-like when I say that I do everything, but I really do. I mean, I am the marketing, advertising, banking, oh, tax time, you know, everything, everything involves right. much energy. Um, but what makes especially different is that I grew up in it, then I went to school for it, and then I came out. So I feel like I have a very specialized, very focused view um, on this period. And I'm able through my experience and my training to produce it, I think, you know, very fast compared to um, someone who maybe is just sort of you know, trying it out and having to figure yeah, it out. Yeah, exactly. I would say like, I, I'm, I'm just, I've had so many years at it. It's very, it's very, um, I couldn't, I just think it would be hard to outsource any of this and get the same result. And some people yeah. are able to do that, but that's not what I do. So what I do is so specialized. I think that that shows. Yeah. So that's, that's like, you're, you're not just getting a piece of clothing, you're getting all of my experience and all of my training. And so hopefully that just makes it um, easier for that person than to tell a story with that piece of clothing. And that's, you know, why I think it's, I'm probably a little bit different. And um, I, it's the world I've like, I've known for so long, I wouldn't know how to do anything else at this point. So, <laughs> I think that helps. I, I eat, yeah. eat, live, sleep it. And so that's kind of, maybe it makes me a bit like a bit mad or a bit like eccentric, but um, I think it gives me um, wonderful perspective. Yeah. And it's just what I do. So if it helps people and I, I think they enjoy it, then then I'm doing the right thing in life, you know? Yeah, yeah I, I agree. So, and I know you mentioned it a little bit, but tell me about the film and tele television um, shows that your clothing has been featured in. Sure. Um, and so most recently, I guess, some things that people might be familiar with um, are um, a show that I'm still plying my way through, which is The Vampire Diaries, um, okay. which is really fun. Um, a lot of my clothing has been bought down the years by productions that have been very, very historic. But then also there's a lot of um, these modern shows where there's mm -hmm. a lot of what they call time travel. So Vampire Diaries was really exciting because they bought a lot of pieces to use in some of the 18th century throwback scenes. Um, okay. And uh, Sleepy Hollow, which was a long running series on Fox in the, the mid 2000s, um, did some, a lot of pieces for them. Um, some stuff in AMC's Turn, which is a really neat series, um, if people haven't seen it on the American Revolution. Um, and um, generally, um, I get a call here and there and an email here and there um, throughout the year to provide, you know, as much sort of ready-made, hey, we need some pieces to fill in here and there. But I do get um, some commissions now and again, which is really exciting. Um, I take on as many as I can, but as one woman, you can imagine I can't actually do right. it. You, you're limited. You only have so many hours in a day. Absolutely. So I, um, I, I try to play very fair. I don't pick and choose based on a lot of people. People have a right to do whatever they want in their own business, but I genuinely right. feel like I take what comes to me and if I can take it on, I do. Right. Um, but I, I don't look for film and TV. I let them, I honestly kind of let them come to me, which is exciting. And, and there's more and more connections. So yes, I get more, yeah. and more of it. The most um, enjoyable piece I ever did that was a commission that uh, is very high profile that a lot of people have seen or could see is 
um, Mount Vernon built that beautiful new visitor center about oh, yes. 12 years ago. Yes, it was like an eight, eight or $9 million beautiful center. It has an IMAX theater in the building. And um, there was, uh, at the beginning of the construction, um, one of my contacts gave me a call and said, I'm working with the costume designer who is um, designing all of the costumes for the movie that's going to be in the IMAX theater. It's going to be running for, you know, this movie will run for probably 20 years and it's right. lots of high profile people in it. So um, if she, if our costume designer um, really likes your work, she needs to outsource some of these pieces because she can't do them all, but she's going to design them. How do you feel about taking a rough design and working with it and providing um, a finished garment that's authentic, that will fit the, you know, all the, right. all, tick all the boxes. And of course I um, looked at my schedule. I said, I'd, I'd be thrilled. I'd, I'd be honored send me the sketches and I'll, I'll let you know. So I received this box a couple, like FedExed overnight and the next day or the day after. I remember I was so excited <laughs> and it was a beautiful sketch. And I sort of sketched an additional sketch. And sort of at the time, this was early on. I'm so this is like maybe 15 years ago. Um, I think I emailed it back to her and she was just like, no, it looks great. I'll send you all the materials. Um, use your creative and historic freedom. Here you go. Let's, here's the measurements. And of course, I did not know at the time, it's interesting, you often do not know who it's going to be worn by. There's, oh, yeah. When it comes to contracts, and it's, it's very, you know, production is very hush-hush. Right. So I said, it's a very high-profile actress, and um, we know you're used to fitting people remotely, so, you know, if you need to make some adjustments, it's fine, but here's her measurements, and, you know, sort of good luck, and sort of, you know, I spent the next three or four weeks making this dress, not sleeping terribly, anxious and worried and nervous, and wondering who it would go on right. later. Um, it was very excited when I sent the dress off, and I kid you not, it was one of the moments where I thought, oh, it's going to be all wrong, you know, <laughs> imposter, imposter syndrome was just yes. very heavy on me at the time, even though it had still a lot of experience. So anyway, I got this call, literally got a call from the designer, which was really kind. Um, they had just received the box and she said, it fits so perfectly. We don't even have to do a single alteration. And I was like, oh, yeah. that's I was exciting. Like, stop. <laughs> I was like, stop, you're going to give me a big head. Like I was so thrilled. And, and I said, and she said, I'm going to send you some pictures. And we're thrilled. Thank you so much. And, um, you know, I'll get, uh, we'll get in touch in the future. A couple of weeks later, they sent me um, a bunch of pictures. And uh, one of them is on my website. If people want to see it, it's on fashionsrevisited.com in my uh, gallery. But the gown was worn by Caroline Goodall, um, who is a BBC actress. She was in, uh, she played Mrs. Schindler in Schindler's List. And she's in The Princess Diaries. She's a really amazing actress. And, um, they sent me some lovely pictures of her in the gown and she said it was super comfortable. So I thought, well, I'm, I'm doing the right thing with my life. Okay. Yes. okay keep going. Now. <laughs> that was probably, that is like one of the most high profile gowns I've ever made for anything. And seeing it on screen down there was just absolutely like, I just sat there and cried. It was really fun. So I'm really lucky. I get to do some fun things in my life. I mean, how yes. often you see something you make on an IMAX screen. That was really fun. So yes, yeah. Yeah. That, that, that is exciting. Yeah. We, um, maybe, Four years ago, four Thanksgivings ago, my uh, we were doing a job in uh, D.C. and my parents were staying to to manage the job. They were staying down in in Virginia, so we went down for Thanksgiving and then we went to Mount Vernon. But I I I wouldn't know um, 
you know, I can't, I can't exactly remember the dress, so I'm going to have to go on the website and look. Yeah, so go back. It's, it's, yeah. um, of course, plays, she plays Martha Washington, and it's the sort of um, brown uh, satin dress in the movie We Fight to Be Free. And you can also buy We Fight to Be Free, I'm pretty sure, on Amazon. You can get it on video if anybody's interested. Um, I do not remember who plays Washington, forgive me, but it's a really beautiful um, depiction of the story of, of how George and Martha met and, and the history of Mount Vernon. So, yeah, it's, you'll have to, you have to go look now. <laughs> So I know that like the world has kind of been upside down. Do you have any lectures or workshops planned right now? Oh yeah, no. Okay. <laughs> Short answer, sorry, I get really giggly. Um, I just have to laugh through, we have to laugh through this whole thing. Right? Oh, I know. Um, I, I really believe strongly that laughter will, will survive anything with laughter. So um, yeah, well, I had quite a lot planned the last, um, couple years my schedule was thankfully incredibly full and yes. so it's NICHAPS so I was doing quite a lot of events for them we've only just started at NICHAPS getting back to events there is an Oktoberfest festival coming up um, on the 12th of September which is um, pre-ticket sales only but um, that's the only thing I'm really involved in in the near future okay. um, I'm running I'm working behind the scenes um, in food ways we're creating authentic Bavarian pretzels and different things so if people come to that event they can get um, really authentic Bavarian style food um, beyond that I have no lectures or shows really until next spring okay. um, the largest show I go to every year is Fort Frederick Market Fair which is an incredibly um, large 18th century style juried market fair in Big Pool, Maryland every year. It's the last full weekend in April. Um, our joke was always that no matter what, come hell or high water, we would all, all of the vendors would always make Fort Fred. And of course this year, none of us made anything. Right. Um, I generally do a mix of um, small lectures for different organizations and uh, different programs for NICHAPS and then programs for Fashions Revisited. So as soon as this plague passes and we all hopefully get back to what, you know, is a more normal existence of right. people and going to events. Um, I will probably have a, a pretty full schedule again, I'm hoping. Um, do so. you, um, do you post those on your social media and on your website? If someone wants to like follow you to, to, to get involved, to, to make sure they don't miss any. Absolutely. There's a okay. couple of schedules they can check. So my main website is fashionsrevisited.com and I have an events page there that's really easy to follow. And anything, whether it's um, an event where I set up with the business where I sell the clothing, like Fort Frederick Market Fair or Smaller Fair, or if it's a food foodways event that I'm hosting or um, doing at NICHAPS, I'll put that on that list as well. They can also put in just to, into Google Dill's Tavern or NICHAPS and find um, there's a full list of events and things that I'm involved in with NICHAPS will be listed there. Also, people can find me on social media. I'm on Instagram at Fashions Revisited. And um, it's pretty, I keep that really current and people can see when I go to an event, I'll post weeks ahead or months ahead. And, um, but yeah, the website, my website's really the, the best place to find that. And I, try, I will keep that as current as possible. Like I said, we, none of us have, I know a lot of states are open in different places. I know right. Mount Vernon actually is as of this moment, still doing their 18th century market fair in it's very, it's coming up very shortly. It's, it's early to mid September. And, um, and I hope uh, for their sake that that, that they are able to, that doesn't get canceled last minute. Um, so there are some places and pe places people are still going, but at the moment, um, I just don't have anything on my docket. So I'm just stocking my Etsy shop and I'm, I'm like a lot of people considering maybe doing a YouTube channel. I would really love to do some historic food waste. Oh, I think that would be, I think that would be great. 
I think I need to have you, Danielle, send a, a message to my husband and say, build April an outside hearth room. She really does do that. I keep that honey do list. Like, honey, I need a, I need a summer kitchen. So when, like, For my YouTube, it, of course, it makes sense. I, I, that, that would be something that I would come up with and then, you know, Jonathan would reluctantly, you know, either, he would either ignore me or reluctantly do it. <laughs> Absolutely. None of us have the same problems at all, right? No, no. Humanity. What I love about history, I'm just going to plug this in. So what I love about history is realizing that every single, every situation we have in life, whether it's to do with like marriage or work or children, it's all the same as a hundred years. Like the only thing that changes oh, yeah. is the clothing, the politics, and like other things. But like people yeah. don't change. And it's amazing no. if you sort of read about husbands and wives and their arguments in the 18th century. And they still remind me of the honeydew list we have now. Cause it's like, right. go plow the field, go do that. It's like, it's, it's literally, I just, I roll my eyes and just laugh and go, okay, my problems are not just my problems. They are everything. Right. We yeah. Know how many things we want the husband to do has never changed. Yeah. Never, yeah. ever changed, never will. <laughs> that, that's very true. I was, um, I have a book, I run away is runaway rogues and something else it has like three word three titles in the oh, and yes. it's it's um uh or advertisements for you know indentured servants or enslaved people that ran away and wives that were maybe that's yes. what it is rogue, rogue yes. wives or something yes. like that and yes. and it makes me giggle because i was reading this and i'm like i'm like um the one the one was like it, i was like this is something somebody would post on facebook if they had facebook then but he had to run down to the newspaper office <laughs> exactly. you know my 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 wife left i have no idea why i did nothing to her oh no, no. <laughs> i was a good husband <laughs> yeah she she's with this person and i'm not paying any more of her debts if you see her yes. i'm like oh my her credit in any store i know yes. <laughs> it is so refreshing and also sort of scary how nothing changes <laughs> yeah i'm like oh my goodness <laughs> This is, this is this is something you'd see on Facebook today, but you know, it's so true. It's so true. <laughs> and you see, people wonder why we study history. Part of it is that we find it reassuring and also humorous that um, societies we, we continue, we improve, we still have problems, but yeah. it gives us hope because we often think in every situation, right, whether it's sickness or mm -hmm. job loss, or especially right now, it's so important to remember this right now. Like, I think when COVID hit, I was thankful that I had the perspective to think back, okay, I know that things like this have happened in history before. Right. How do I get through this? Of course I was this crazy, sad, manic and everything, as everybody else. No one right. knows how to handle any of this. But at the end of the day, you just go, I'm not alone and this is not new. Right. Like, and yeah, and I think I'm that's reassured. Yeah, yeah, I think that's really an important perspective because there there is that feeling of like, oh, this is the first time it's ever happened. But it isn't. It's not the, yeah. nothing's yeah. new. Nothing's new under the sun. <laughs> and, right? and people don't change. <laughs> people people fundamentally are the same as they were, you know, two hundred years ago. Mm -hmm. yeah. So okay. So and uh so tell me about the um any challenges or trends that you see from your perspective of in history or preservation. Yeah, it's, I really love that question because uh, there's so many ways that I could talk about that. So like when it comes to clothing, for example, so trends in historic preservation, like I find it's really interesting, um, especially when people reproduce or wear clothing, for example, um, that's clothing of the past. We think that we're always reproducing it correctly, even if we, okay, you could get an authentic pattern, for example, right. make the garment as authentically as possible, use the most authentic everything at the time. And it's still going to look quite frankly, sort of dated later on, because no matter what, you are always working with modern materials and right. you're always working with a modern mindset, even if you learn the techniques. So that is always um, in the back of my mind. Within 
reproduction of historic clothing, there's always trends. And people mm -hmm. find this really interesting. I talk about this, often people ask me to speak about what it is I do when I reproduce historic clothing and why I do it and all that sort of jazz. Um, people are really surprised to find out when I tell them that just like we have trends and fashionable things in, in modern fashion, it's the same when re people reproduce historic clothing. Mm -hmm. There will be trends within like the living history community. They'll, someone will put out a bonnet pattern and then like everyone has that bonnet pattern six months later. And <laughs> the bonnet is everywhere. And you just think, right. okay, well, was it that prevalent? And then people start having these really in-depth conversations about, well, was this bonnet really that prevalent? Or is this just because everyone now has the pattern? So it's interesting to follow the trends and sort of like um, within the clothing, I, I find it, it's, it's really exciting and interesting. So um, often what I try to do is find that garment that, like I said earlier, I know people need, but they don't have yet. And I don't want to say I start to try to start a trend, but I sort of like watch what people are willing to accept, <laughs> what they're willing to wear. And I sort of like try to create things that I know they need for the interpretation or for the period, but then that they're comfortable with as well. And so that's sort of, that's sort of, I don't know if that answers the question entirely, but it's sort of interesting to follow. There are trends and there are um, fashion, you know, fashions and there are like um, themes within preservation right. clothing. Yeah. And then when it comes to things like, foodways and the actual preservation of buildings and things like the side of things that I'm involved with NYCHAPS. It's, it's really complex, isn't it? Because um, often we know that preservation follows the money, right? I mean, right. people can't preserve something if there really isn't any money. Right. It's very hard to preserve a building. Like we said, with Dill's Tavern is a perfect example. It's, it was privately owned for a very long time. And then it sat empty for a while. It was still owned, but it wasn't being cared or, you know, loved. It, it, it just, it waited for us to come along with a lot of cash injection. Right. Yeah. And so, and, and then continually, as you know, these buildings are like a child that goes to the ER every five minutes. Um, <laughs> and so, um, the, you know, preservation, people have to want to save it and they have to want to spend money on it. Right. And so I think it's interesting to watch what people are willing to spend their money on, what organizations, what individuals, and sort of following those trends. I think right now people are very interested in preserving um, history that um, is usable. Like Dill's Tavern is very usable. We do lots right. of events there. And so and it's, it's a real life's blood. Um, when, you know, when there isn't money, it's harder to preserve things. So I think it's interesting to follow where the money goes. <laughs> it's interesting right. to see what, yeah. what people yeah. are interested in. You know, I know sometimes too, um, not having money, especially in like residential architecture, the not having money kind of preserves things too. Cause you can't then <laughs> get the, you can't get like the newest, whatever is being marketed as, you know, maintenance free. Or <laughs> oh, it's true. Isn't it true? It's like, yeah. it's some, something survives for like two reasons. Either there's no money and no one's touching it. Right. <laughs> Or there's lots, you have to have, as you know, fine, well, you have to have a lot of money to do it right. Right. And yeah. if there's people like us that share something, it's like we share that, like, I live in a historic reproduction home. It was built in the 1970s. Okay. They built it so well, they built it correctly. They used mortar and not quickcrete to, right. to do the brick facade. For example, I've got wooden floors, I've got wide door frames. And this is another thing that, you know, I, like in museums that I've worked in, um, that follows this theme. Nothing is standard. Nothing is off the rack. Nothing's right. off the peg, all those terms. Nothing. So when I bring anybody <laughs> in to do anything I cannot do as far as work-wise, right. they just stare at me and go, what do you mean I can't go to Lowe's? I'm like, no. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and one of, one of the things on your website that I loved was um, 
it was, it was, I think on your Instagram page, it was showing about like, is, is something, a material that you use in the preservation of like, let's say a building, if it, it has to, it has to come up under many standards. It can't just work at the time. It has to right. like, work. Yeah. Also, I'm going to butcher this, right? But it's going to, it's got to work. It's got to look right. It's got to last. It's got to be yeah. an original sort of material. And, and I really, I really like connect with that because that's how I feel about everything because there's so right. much we're in such a throwaway society. And, and that's very you know, true. Yeah. Yeah. If we grab a building and don't put enough money into it, if we just do what looks good, it won't last and we'll have to do it again. And, and, and it can be damaging to the building depending on what you're doing. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, 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 I agree. And I think that there there's, I think that I tend to find commonality or at least in, in philosophies with people like you, like the artisans, because yeah, yeah. not that, and, and I think that the work that we do is artisan also, but it's just a different type of work. It's a different, it's a different like scale, I guess. You just come from a different direction, but yeah, yeah. it's the same. Yeah. It's absolutely. Yeah. You're, you're artist. But yeah, definitely. I think that that is, um, that, but the, the, you know, you're, you're really going against a throwaway society by, 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 you know, making a, you know, making clothing one at a time, you know, like that's, that's mm-hmm. not what we do. <laughs> you can't, you can't go and buy, you know, buy that at Target. <laughs> not. I know. I feel like sometimes I'm just a masochist because I think we're, we're constantly fighting a system and we're in a way we're just, Danielle, we're just really rebellious. I think people, right. we're, we're, we look like, I look, if you saw me, if you, if this wasn't a, if this was a Zoom and this wasn't a podcast, everyone would be laughing because I mean, I look like, I don't look like a rebellious person. <laughs> down I'm really just fighting all systems I'll leave it there um, that's funny that's funny I, I do often announce that I'm not a joiner and like it once people start right. wanting to do stuff I don't want to do it anymore <laughs> okay right yeah so when something is popular for example when skinny jeans it's a really stupid analogy but I'm gonna throw so when skinny jeans came out and everyone was all over skinny I'm like I'm not wearing skinny jeans right that's what I do too so maybe it is maybe maybe we do need to be analyzed <laughs> I think maybe there's a lot there that needs to be yeah but you know what it's okay I'm happy you know yes, yes. <laughs> I just wear bell bottoms it's all good you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um is there anything that we didn't that I didn't think to ask you about or that we didn't cover that you want to cover or that you thought about while we were talking oh well I I suppose if I were to just add something I I'll do what I always do after programs or when people come up and ask me questions after you know interpretation uh, seeing seeing me interpret something, I really like to like challenge people in in a very positive way, um, especially right now. Again, with everything going on in the world and um, the modern, you know, fast paced lifestyle that we have, as regards preservation, like historic preservation. One of the things that I think people should focus on, and something that's really enriching, is to like take. It's easier now than ever, but take a step back and look at your life, and especially if you're. If you're listening to this, you're probably into history. You're probably really historically minded, or maybe you're interested in becoming more like focused on history. You know, really take a look at everything you have in your everyday modern life and sort of start analyzing it from like a really positive perspective of like, what am I getting the life I want out of all these things? What could I do without? What could I do better with? Like, if you wanted to learn to cook, now's the best time to learn to cook because people are constantly asking me, especially with COVID. So how, April, how do I make bread? I've never made bread before. <laughs> how do I go about that? That was like the thing to do. <laughs> yes, like, how do I, like even though Google is there and everything is like, it's actually not that easy just to learn. I mean, watch YouTube videos. Yes. Do anything. I'm encouraging people to do anything 
to learn more skills is what I'm getting at. You know, yeah. do anything to analyze. Like for example, technology is wonderful. It's a wonderful aid, but as much of it as we have, no matter what time period we're living in, you can always do with less and right. you will be happier. I, I promise you. And so if you can find a way to disconnect from all the stress and all the, the modern life, and even if COVID wasn't going on, I mean, even if this was just a time where we were just talking and nothing, you know, nothing really big like this was going on in the world, I'd still encourage people to do exactly the same thing. That's so why I felt like when things started changing, I felt like I had this really neat um, sort of like mission and people were reaching out and emailing mm -hmm. and, you know, asking me a million questions about like, yeah, how do I just do basic daily things? How do I preserve food um, to make things last longer? Because I'm not going to go to the grocery store as much. Right. It's been really enjoyable and really enriching for me to remind people that like, they, they don't have to panic. They can do it. They can mm -hmm. learn the skills. They can use books, YouTube, any sort right. of media to get you started. But then also like, you know, remind yourself that you are a human, that we have primal instincts that are deep down there. Like, it's like Dr. Spock, you know, who's kind of debatable but <laughs> I just say about, I love when the, our generation grew up and, the, and they told, he told mothers, you, you do have the knowledge and skill inside of you. Right. You must trust it. And I do really, um, I do really appreciate statements like that because I find that um, it's very true. I watch people who, who come to my classes and they've never hard cooked before. They've never even cooked and they leave and they actually realize they can do something kind of primal, like cook over a hearth. And so yeah. I encourage people to like, just analyze what it is that you're doing and um, try to find ways to learn more like everyday skills because sometimes people think they're not important, but they, they really enrich your life. They make you much more profoundly happy and grateful. And um, no matter what you're living through, no matter when you're living through it, no matter what's going on in the world, you will be enriched and you will be happier and you will, you will feel better about your life because you'll be able to um, connect with the past and have more everyday skills, which nobody can ever not be enriched by. So right. I just encourage people to like, try to, to just be adventurous and, um, you know, look at, look at your everyday life through a different perspective. Cause the one thing I do is I'm constantly reproducing people's everyday life from 200 years ago. And it never fails to make me grateful for what I have and capable for the future, no matter what happens. Yeah. So, no, and I think, I think that's really important advice. I know once, um, when I was in college, we had to like do like a conversation starter thing and we had to pull a, something out of a hat. And it was like, what do you wish that you had learned in school that you didn't? Mm -hmm. And, and I, and I got it. I was sitting there thinking, I don't know what I'm going to say. And then, cause I hate those things anyway. That's probably part of me not being a joiner. And then I finally realized that like when I was in high school, I could have taken like a sewing class. We, like, we still had a full like home at kind of program and I didn't. And I can sew buttons on like my mom made sure I could mend things. And, but I, I can't sew from a pattern. I bought a pattern once and I got, I was over it like within, you know, an hour and I gave it to my mom and she made my curtains. <laughs> <laughs> so like, that's something that I wish that I, you know, had the skills to do. So 
Yep. I can I, I completely I completely understand. But that's okay because see, Danielle, you just haven't found the skill yet. So the other thing I should mention is like, so you don't have to feel guilty that you didn't connect with sewing. And right. you don't have to like, you know what I mean? I'm not preaching like I think it's wonderful yeah. whatever skill. So even like woodworking and yeah. um cooking and um, yeah, I think the, yeah. But yeah, yeah. anything I, anything that anyone can do that is a a skill, you know, but more like a, when I say everyday skills, yeah, sewing and cooking, there's also other, you know, other everyday skills. Important skills. Yeah. Skills, yeah. What yeah. I need to do is find, I will cook for them if they will sew for me and we can just do it. That is the way to do it. Yep. So find your, find your niche, find your love and then just, yeah, run with it. And then never, never apologize that you don't like sewing a curtain. That's nothing wrong with that at all. <laughs> So did you have any offers for, for our listeners? Uh, I didn't know if there was anything you had to promote or, you know, any, anything um, like that. Um, not really any promotion. Okay. Okay. Just, just I'll throw, I'll throw some plugs out there for sure. people if they're interested. So if you want to look up um, my business, of course, you know, fashionsrevisited.com. Um, there's a link to my Etsy shop if anyone's interested. And then I'm on Instagram at Fashions Revisited and at Fashions Revisited Foodways if you want to follow my foodie foodie pursuits. Um, and of course, um, we would love to see you at the Historic Dills Tavern or any of the NYCHAPS events. Um, and like I said, that is, you can just Google Dills Tavern um, mm-hmm. or NYCHAPS, N-Y-C-H-A-P-S, and you can find all the information there. And um, I really hope to see people in the future at any event whatsoever. Yes. Um, <laughs> when when things start happening again, um, and uh, and really, and if anybody has any questions, they can feel free to email me. Also, at April at fashionsrevisited.com. Okay, very um, good. We will make sure that all of those links are also on our um, on our site. So the what the podcast gets posted on our on our on our website. So we'll make sure all those links are there too. So if somebody is listening and they don't get a chance, they can go to our site and and link through to you. Also, yeah, I'd love to hear from so people even if they just have questions. I love I welcome I welcome you know, any questions. And um, like, like you said earlier, when you are involved in things like this, it's really good to find your people. Yes, <laughs> it is. People. It so, is. you know, I, I love, um, I love doing these because I think it just, sometimes it's, it's not obvious where to find your people. And so hopefully, you know, there are, I think there are a lot more of us out there than we realize. So yeah, I, I agree. Well, thank you so much. I really, I really enjoyed our, our conversation today. I did too, Danielle. It was really lovely to be asked and to be, to be here. Oh, forgive me. My thing is something, something technology is ringing at me. I had to turn Oh on. no. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Practical Preservation Podcast. The resources discussed during this episode are on our website at practicalpreservationservices.com forward slash podcast. If you received value from this episode and know someone else that will get value from it as well, please share it with them. Join us next week for another episode of the Practical Preservation Podcast. For more information on restoring your historic home, visit practicalpreservationservices.com.